My name is Scott Holley. I am uh, standing in for Tom Ricks today because he is at City Church. This is an important day in the life of City Church and of Green Tree because this is a day that City Church particularizes. Now, that's church lingo, which none of us really understands, and I don't know why they use that word, but what it means is that this is a day that City Church becomes an independent congregation. After being under the care of Green Tree as a part of our mission to plant churches, this is the day the city church goes off on its own with their own elders, their own staff, their own budget. This is, in a sense, the second birth of city church. So Tom's there today preaching at, at city church, representing Green Tree, at, and what really is a day of celebration for them and for us. So as we begin today's service, what I'd like to do is pray for city church, pray for Green Tree, and today's service at both churches. So let's do that, and then we'll get into today's sermon. Father, we are grateful for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do through City Church, and for the leadership of Mike Werkheiser and Phil Woods that have brought them to this point where this church can now stand on its own two feet. This is a day of celebration of your goodness to that church and your goodness to this church, that we're able to, to fulfill part of our mission and that they are able to celebrate with us in, in gaining their independence. May they today praise your name and honor you through all that they do, and may we do the same thing here through our worship time, through what goes on at Sunday school, through the sermon. May this day be nothing but a celebration of your goodness and of our recognition of our need for you, whether it's City Church or a Green Tree. So thank you, Lord, for this day. And we ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. As you look at the title of the, of the sermon, you see it's part two of a fond farewell. If you were not here last week, Tom Ricks began this sermon by talking about an address that Paul gave to the church at Ephesus. He had been ministering there for months, and now he's going to leave. He did not think he would ever return, so this is his goodbye to the church at Ephesus. A farewell address is basically an opportunity for a leader to say to those who are following him, this is what matters, this is what's important. This is what I want to leave you with to think about. And so Tom took us through the first half of that farewell address last week. We're going to look at the second part of it this week and see what it is that, that Paul thinks is so important that the church in Ephesus, and by extension, the church at Green Tree, needs to hear as well. So that's where we're headed today, Paul's farewell address to Ephesus and to Green Tree. Let's start by saying this. About 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, really, I walked into my... Uh, walked into the teacher's lounge at, at school. And there was in my mailbox a piece of paper which I pulled out and read, and it was an appeal to the Christian community to write to the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, to protest the efforts of Madeleine Murray O'Hare to ban religious broadcasting on television and radio airwaves throughout America. Now, you may know the name Madeline Murray O'Hare. She was the woman who in the early 1960s was instrumental in banning school prayer from public schools. And now, according to this piece of paper I was holding in my hand, her next crusade was a ban religious broadcasting. And so I read, that, I read that appeal, and I'd like to read the first paragraph of it to you so you can get a sense of what it is that this was saying. Here, here's the first paragraph of that appeal that I received that day more than 20 years ago. An organization of atheists has been granted a hearing by the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, in Washington, D.C. Their petition, number 2493, would ultimately pave the way to stop the reading of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on the airwaves of America. 
They have 287,000 signatures to back their stand. If this attempt is successful, all Sunday worship services being broadcast on the radio or by television will be stopped. This group is also campaigning to remove all Christmas programs and Christmas carols from public schools. You as a Christian can help. We're praying for at least one million signatures. This would defeat their effort and show that there are many Christians alive, well, and concerned about our country. As Christians, we must unite on this. Please don't take this lightly. We ignored Madeline Murray O'Hare once and lost prayer in our schools throughout our nation. Please stand up for your religious freedom and let your voice be heard. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, I have to say, when I read this, it just didn't pass the smell test. I just didn't believe it. I didn't really think that this was a legitimate threat. I mean, it didn't seem possible that, given the First Amendment, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, which guarantees freedom of speech and freedom of worship, that the FCC or any federal agency would ban religious broadcasting. So I took that piece of paper, and I stuck it back in my mailbox, and I walked away. Providentially, I walked down to the library. And I went into the library and saw the most recent edition of Christianity Today, which had arrived at our school that very day. I picked it up. I opened it up. I thumbed through it and found an article on urban legends within the church. And it mentioned a number of things. For instance, I didn't know until I read it that, that some Christian geologists, or some geologists, rather, were digging a hole somewhere in Finland down into the center of the earth, and they, they lowered a microphone down that hole and found out that they, they could hear the screams of souls in hell. I didn't know that, but that was what this, that's what some Christians were saying anyway. Another one, another urban legend was that Madeline Murray O'Hare was appealing to the Federal Communications Commission to ban religious broadcasting. So I went back and I got that piece of paper out of my mailbox and I photocopied that article and I distributed it to all the other teachers at school and said, this isn't legit. The Madeline Murray O'Hare is not indeed making any effort to ban religious broadcasting. The FCC is not seeking to do that. Now, I tell this story because the sad thing is that this petition is still out there. I tell this story to my students every year, and every year, not every year, every other year at least, one of my students will come in and they'll tell me they got an email blast from somebody warning them that Madeline Murray O'Hare, even though she's been dead since 1995, is still trying to ban religious broadcasting in the United States. This rumor is still out there. As a matter of fact, the FCC has received over 35 million letters and emails since the mid-1970s about this very issue. This is an urban legend that will not die. Now, I think this appeal and Christians' response to it is emblematic of the mindset that too many Christians have as we look at the world. We have an us-against-the-world mentality. We think that the secular world is out to get us and that we need to erect our defenses against it. We're way too gullible about rumors that seem to threaten the security of the church, and we see enemies on every side and treat those who oppose the church or we think oppose the church as our enemies. In a culture that does increasingly seem to marginalize people of faith, we're quick to take offense and cry persecution when someone is critical in any way of the church. But it's interesting, in Paul's farewell address, in the second half of his farewell address, he seems to indicate that the real threat to the church is not external, it's internal. Sure, Christians may fall to persecution, and in Paul's day, that threat was very real to him personally. But the greater danger, he said, was from self-inflicted wounds. 
we can talk all we want about the increasing opposition to the church in America, and again, we have reason to be concerned, but Paul had much more reason to be concerned in his day, and yet he saw the threat as coming from within. So let's read today's text, let's see what Paul is saying, and then let's see what we can learn about it at Green Tree Community Church. Today's text begins in Acts 20, verse 28. The words are on the screen, they're in the program, I'll read them, let's go. This is reading of God's holy and perfect word. Paul writes, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from, your own cell, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, it's important to point out that in these words, Paul is addressing a specific audience. He is talking to the overseers, his word, or the elders of the church in Ephesus. And so, in a sense, this message is directed to the elders of Green Tree Community Church. But by extension, it's directed to all of us, because the threat that he is posing here, that he's articulating here, is something that the elders need to take, take care to watch out for, but it's something that every one of us can fall victim to. So again, while the elders need to pay careful attention to these verses, we can all learn something from them. So let's look at the three warnings that Paul gives to the church in Ephesus, to the elders there, and see what we can learn from them. First, he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves. Pay careful attention to yourselves. That is, he's saying that the greatest menace that the church faces is the sin that individual believers carry within them. C.S. Lewis once warned believers, the true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. That's a strong image, isn't it? The inner cesspool. And yet I think that's, those, those words are aptly chosen. It's easy for us to become spiritually complacent, spiritually smug, to think that because we may have been a Christian for a long time, we've been a part of a church community for a long time, we may be actively involved in ministry in some meaningful way, that we somehow are immune to the sin within us. But that's not what Paul's saying. And that's not what C.S. Lewis is saying. Anyone who pays any attention at all to the newspapers knows that many, many churches have been torn apart by the adultery of a pastor or by the embezzlement of the business manager or just by the ordinary power struggles of leaders in the church. Add to that the vanity, the greed, the foolish choices of all of us that we can make as a part of any church body, and the threat is real. Our egos can destroy a church as much as can the legions of Rome. We have an amazing capacity to overlook our own vanity, an amazing capacity to justify our own selfishness, and can do irreparable damage to ourselves, to our families, and to the church. And so Paul says the first duty of the church is to pay careful attention to yourselves. I had a conversation about a month ago with a good friend of mine who was telling me about a Bible study that his wife had been in several years ago, about 15 years ago, in another church. He said there were five women in this Bible study. These women were all model Christians. They were all leaders in the church. They were all women who were highly involved in the church, active in ministry, and anybody would say, to use a old, rather old-fashioned word, they were pillars of the church. They were married to men who were similarly involved in the church, all of, them, all of the men leaders in the church, 
And these were people who everyone in the, that church looked to as, if you will, model Christians. Today, 17 years later, of those five marriages, only one of them is intact. The others have all crumbled, some through adultery. Now, we like to think that these were good men, and they were, and good women, and they were, and yet they fell victim to their sinful natures. We are all prone to that, those kinds of choices. There it is. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Lewis is saying about the intercess pool. We are vain. We are proud. We are driven by ego. We make foolish choices. And the church often falls victim to that. So when Paul writes to the Ephesians, pay careful attention to yourselves, he is not being unduly cautious. He's not being unrealistic. He is reflecting the reality of the human heart. So when Paul warns the church in Ephesus, he's also warning the, warning the church in Green Tree. The first step towards spiritual health is to say, I'm a sinner. I need help. And to come before God on a daily basis, not an occasional basis, on a daily basis in, in recognition of the need within us. And our sin may not be anything obvious at all. It may not be a sin of commission. It may be a sin of omission. That's the warning that John gave to the church in Ephesus in Revelations 2.4 when he wrote these words. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. They've abandoned the love they had at first. We can become spiritually complacent. We can have a sense we've arrived have no need to repent. Last week, Tom talked at great length about humility and the importance of humility within the church. And that's a good reminder. There is a un humanly unbridgeable chasm between ourselves and God that can only be crossed when God reaches across it and says to us as sinners, I love you. And when we recognize the depth of our sin and reach out and respond to that, until, unless we recognize our, our sin and the power of God to change us, we can't, are in danger of spiritual boredom and even spiritual rebellion. So again, what is the first duty of the Christian to safeguard his or her heart? It's pay careful attention to yourselves. We find protection from our sin nature by surrendering our will to him regularly, daily, consistently, and in humility. Here's Paul's second warning. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Paul begins the verses we read today by saying, pay careful attention. He says near the end, therefore be alert. What he's saying is there's real danger. There is real danger. We must be on guard to ensure that we are not led astray by faulty teaching, whether that teaching comes from within the church or without. I'll never forget an Easter Sunday service that I attended many years ago when I was in college. I grew up throughout my adolescence in a church that was filled with warm, friendly, caring people. It was led by a warm, caring, friendly pastor. And I was a new Christian in college. I came home to celebrate Easter Sunday with my family. And I sat down there eager to hear a message on one of the most important days, if not the most important day of the church calendar. I'll never forget the words with which the minister began the sermon. I'm going to read them verbatim because I got a text of that sermon later on. This is what he said. We are here to celebrate Easter Sunday a day which many believe marks a day that Christ rose from the dead, but we know is actually a day meant to give us the knowledge that even in our darkest times, we can still live with hope. I recall looking around the sanctuary that day thinking, does anybody else think there's anything wrong with what he just said? 
Did anybody else hear that? Am I the only one who thinks what he just said was kind of strange? He said, Easter Sunday is a day about hope, period. I mean, yes, it is about hope, certainly, but it's so much more. The reality of the bodily resurrection of Christ was totally missing from that service, from that sermon. It wasn't there. And that's a doctrine just a wee bit important for Christianity. After all, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, and 14, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. This minister essentially gutted the meaning of the resurrection. He did effectively undercut the heart and soul of Christianity by turning the resurrection into a symbol, not an objective historical reality. I hate to say this, and I know it sounds arrogant to do so, but I think there were wolves at work in that church, taking the truth of Scripture and bending it at the whim of popular opinion. Too many churches are like the church in my adolescence, quick to reinterpret the words of Holy Scripture, quick to find fault with the miraculous and the supernatural. After all, ideas like the inerrancy of Scripture seem so old, so old-fashioned, and miracles seem so medieval. It's always important we measure our theology, however, by the plumb line of God's word. We cannot form our theology on the basis of a personal opinion, by, by majority rule, or by social custom. God's word ought to determine who we are. And when wolves are at the door, the reference point always has to be Scripture. We cannot use Scripture to reinforce our personal worldview. Rather, our lives will be ruled by Scripture. We're not to overrule it. The first century church faced that danger constantly. This is a new faith with a new beginning, establishing precedence, establishing a foothold in a community that had no idea of the enormity of who Jesus was. And so you can imagine that the early church faced lots of wolves. One of the wolves they faced dealt with the issue of circumcision. Now, for the Jew in the first century, circumcision was a sign of membership in the family of faith. All Jewish males were to be circumcised, whether as infants or as they got older, if they converted to Judaism, then adult males would be circumcised. That was the way it was done. So when the church began, some of, those, some of the Jewish Christians began to say of Gentile converts that they needed to be circumcised. That's the way it should be. Now that caused enormous controversies in the church. People like Paul and Barnabas specifically said, no, 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 that's not the way it's to be. That's not what Scripture says. So there was a real threat to the church, but the church did a very smart thing. Rather than let the controversy fester, they addressed it head-on by calling together the leaders of both sides and said, let's talk this through. Here's what happened in Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Simply put, they had a meeting. They didn't let the controversy split the church. They didn't let the issue breed confusion. They said, look, look, let's get together. Let's pray about this. Let's talk about it. Let's err our sides. Let's measure it against the truth of Scripture. Let's make a decision, and let's come together around that decision. Now, this was the first church in the New Testament. This was the church in Jerusalem, the first body of elders, establishing a precedent for us. There are going to be moments in the history of Green Tree Community Church when issues are going to arise which can cause potential division. And what they're saying to us here is, don't let the wolves destroy the unity of this church. Don't let that happen. Come together, talk, ask questions. 
measure your argument, whatever it is, against the plumb line of Scripture. What does Scripture say? And then talk, listen, learn, weigh our viewpoint. Through, again, the lens of Scripture, make a decision, unite, and move on. That's what they're saying. That's what they did. That's the precedent. We cannot let theological disputes tear us apart. We cannot let policy issues tear us apart. We have to come together and talk these things through. Now, of course, that means that we must weigh our point of view against the evidence of Scripture, which means we must read Scripture. If we come to church once a week and, and the only thing we hear about the Bible is what we hear on Sunday morning, it's very difficult to know the Word of God well. It is incumbent upon us to read it, to study it, to learn from it, whether, that, whether we do that in a Bible study in a formal way or do it at home individually, arguably both. But we must spend time in God's words so that becomes familiar enough that we can men and women of discernment, able to separate truth from ill-informed opinion. We cannot let the wolves tear apart this church because the wolf lies with each one of us. Our ego, our vanity, our pride can destroy this church. Paul's final warning alerts us to why maintaining order in the church is so difficult. He writes this, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Every church, every church is vulnerable to people speaking twisted things, to a clash of will between those who disagree about questions of theology or direction or policy. Now, it's okay to disagree. There's nothing wrong with that. We're entitled to a point of view. But the problem is, is when we twist those arguments into something ugly. In the face of a serious dispute, our knee-jerk reaction is to ascribe the worst possible motives to those who disagree with us while ascribing absolutely pure motives to ourselves. I do that. I know how that works. And so rather than going to the person with whom we have an issue, we talk behind their back, we gossip, we mull over their foolishness while patting ourselves on the back for our own wisdom. We seek to recruit allies to our side and badmouth those who disagree with us rather than having difficult conversations with them, seeking to bring healing. I heard a sermon many years ago in which the pastor called the excuse me, warned the congregation of the dangers of what he called murmuring. I think that's a great word. A church that, a church that is filled with murmurs is a church that is filled with great grave danger. So our tongue can cause enormous damage to the unity of a church and to our relationships with one another. And all Jewish teaching compares the tongue to an arrow. Why not another weapon, a sword, for example, one rabbi asked. Because, he's told, if a man unsheaths his sword to kill his friend, and his friend pleads with him and begs for mercy, the man may be mollified and return his sword to his scabbard. But an arrow, once it's shot, cannot be returned. That's a helpful metaphor. Our words can destroy the unity of a church or a friendship faster than any physical weapon. Once voiced, words cannot be taken back, and though apologies can help to restore what is broken, those who speak twisted things can easily destroy a relationship and can destroy a church. Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, in his book, Words That Hurt, Words That Heal, tells a Jewish folktale set in 19th century Eastern Europe of a man who went throughout the village slandering the rabbi. Overcome with remorse, that same man went to the rabbi and said, is there some way I can make amends? I'm so sorry for what I've been saying about you. And the rabbi said, yes, there is. Here's what you need to do. Go home, take a pillow, slit it open, a feather pillow, slit it open, and scatter the feathers to the wind. The man did exactly that, came back to the rabbi and said, am I now forgiven? Almost, said the, said the rabbi, you now have to perform one last task. Go and gather up all the feathers. 
But that's impossible, said the man, for the wind has already scattered them. Precisely, said the rabbi. The rabbi in the story understand that words are incredibly dangerous. That words once uttered cannot be taken back. Again, apologies can heal, but the damage can still be done. Once our place, in other words, our reputation is defined, it's very hard to change, particularly if what is said is negative. And once a murmur begins to spread rumors and innuendo, the unity of the church is in grave, grave danger. That's what Paul recognized. That's what he warned against. That's what the twisted things are. Those who bring a personal agenda to the altar threaten the security of the church. Now, we need to be clear about one thing. There's nothing wrong with members of this or any church holding the leaders accountable, asking good questions. That is our responsibility as members of this church. The Presbyterian form of government says that we elect our leaders, and that gives us the right to challenge them, to question them. But the spirit in which people lead a church matters a great deal. And the spirit in which the members of a church respond to leadership matters a great deal, too. If we come to the, come to the leaders with questions and criticism, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what we need to do, especially when we're dealing with important issues. But the elders of this church should expect all of us to approach them in an attitude of honest inquiry, not combative confrontation, just as we expect them to lead with humility and a desire to do the will of God. So how does Paul close his farewell address? He writes this. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those, all those who are sanctified. He tells us to cling to the word of grace to recognize we are debtors to one who has saved us from ruin, and so we must, as Tom said last week, live in a spirit of humility. Those who are too proud to examine their own hearts to see the sin that lurks within, those who treat the word of God casually and so undercut the essence of the gospel, and those who would rather spread rumors and insinuations and actually talk to people who disagree with them are greater threats to church than anything Madeline Murray O'Hara could ever do. The famous line from the old comic trick Pogo says it best, we have met the enemy, and he is us. The greatest danger to Green Tree Community Church exists in this room. It exists within my heart. I need to examine myself. We need to examine ourselves and come before one another in a spirit of humility. God has given us an inheritance of this church, an inheritance of faith, that we may be whole, may we be made holy through the Holy Spirit, and it is within us then to build one another up rather than tear one another down. We need to come together in a spirit of humility and surrender to God's will, studying his word to understand what he, he wants for us as individuals and us as a church. So what's it to be? God has given us a gift in this church, a gift we're called to safeguard. Do we have the humility to admit that we might be wrong? Do we have the humility to think the other person's point of view might be worth listening to? Do we have the humility to think that God might know better than we do how to run his church? God calls us to be ruled by the word of his grace. May that be the hallmark of our lives, and may that be the hallmark of this church. Let me close in prayer. Father, we have an amazing capacity to screw things up. We have an amazing capacity to take what is holy and tarnish it through our vanity, our pride, our foolish choices. May you protect this church from us. May you protect this church from our egos, from our false agendas, from our bad choices. Lord, please be with us. Please keep us from making terrible mistakes. And please let us treat one another with dignity and kindness and love.
because you have first loved us. We ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.